Indeed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Father, we acknowledge Your sovereignty today. We rejoice in Your absolute and perfect control over everything. We are tempted. We often act as though everything is by chance. Or that we, in some strange way, are in control ourselves. But Your Word assures us that this is not the case. Your Spirit shows us continually that this is not true. We ask that You would forgive us of our pride and our arrogance. That You would remind us that Your thoughts and ways are infinitely superior to ours. Remind us today of Your incredible mercy and grace. Remind us today of Your incomprehensible love. Remind us that when we were rebellious, corrupt, condemned, You came looking for us. You came to die for us, to rescue us. Give us open hearts. Give us ears that will hear, that we might know You. Teach us that we might know Your glory. Change us that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. And that through us Your glory might be revealed in this broken world. Father, I pray as we begin to navigate through these rich truths, doctrines, teachings, that Lord uh, put so much pressure upon our finite minds uh, that You would give us hearts that are indeed are humble that we would be willing to hear Your voice speak, that we would be willing to accept what You say as truth, and that we would be willing, Lord, to walk and move and operate in the power of Your Spirit, in obedience to all that You command us. And we ask these things in the name of our Savior and our Lord. Jesus. Amen and amen. Last week we did a flyover of this letter to the Ephesians. Today we're going to begin doing some mining. We're going to uh, go down into the shafts and we're going to navigate through the various verses and even phrases here. There's so much here. Uh, It's not an exaggeration. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great uh, teachers, expositors of Scripture in the 20th century, who pastored for 30 years at Westminster Chapel in England, was of Welsh descent. He said that this was uh, an incredibly rich book, and he spent eight years expositing its truths for his congregation. Eight years. Now, we're not going to do that here. I'm not Martin Lloyd-Jones. I don't know anyone that's his equal in this modern era. Uh, But we will take a few months and work through this because it is such a powerful 
and rich book. And so I would ask that you, as we go through it, that you go through with a mind that wants to learn, that wants to understand and hear what God has to say, that you will check all of your presuppositions at the door, and that you will allow God to speak to you from His Word. This uh, passage that we're beginning this morning begins, the first chapter begins with a typical Paul greeting. He uh, extends grace. He tells them who he is, and then he launches into one of the longest sentences, maybe the longest sentence that you'll ever read. Verses 3 through 14 in the original text was one sentence. Now, translators have helped us out by putting some punctuation in there, giving us a chance to breathe, a chance to stop and think about what we have read. That's why you'll find at the end of verse 4, in love... And some people try to tag that on to the end of that expression, but actually it goes better with verse 5. And so there's a period right before it. It's an awkward read because of the way it's been punctuated, but nevertheless, you begin to get the idea. So these verses are literally an eruption from Paul. He is writing this letter. I told you last week that the people of Ephesus were very special in Paul's heart. He'd spent at least two years, maybe closer to three years there, ministering, teaching them, uh, equipping them. And uh, we are reminded in Acts uh, 20, as Paul connects with the elders from that church for the last time, he wept with them. Uh, at the thought of leaving and not seeing them again. He was very concerned for this church. So when he writes this, he's writing to them, and it's almost as if he's overtaken by some wave of emotion. Uh, He reminds himself of why he's writing, and it literally sets off this volcano in his heart and soul, and he just begins this incredible doxology, this this hymn of praise to the Lord that is filled with deep theological truths. We could spend weeks, even months, I think, in these first few verses. We won't. We'll try to move through uh, a little bit quicker than that. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Three times he alludes to blessed or blessing. He has blessed. This is a a very uh, interesting statement. The first word there in verse 3, blessed, is where we get our word uh, eulogize from or a eulogy. So he's saying uh, we're going to say something good about God. We're going to express something about His character. We're going to celebrate that together. And then he moves through and talks about us being blessed because of doing this, and also the blessing that we have received, spiritual blessing, because of our relationship in Christ. So God is praiseworthy. John Calvin noted four different significations of this word uh, surrounding blessed. He said that we bless God when we offer praise to Him for His goodness. And God blesses us when He crowns our endeavors with success or when He gives us effectiveness in what we're doing. And then men bless each other through offering prayers for one another. And then the priest blessed not only by prayer, but 
pledge divine blessing. They're spokesmen for God pledging His blessing upon us. So at the heart of this passage, at the heart of these first few verses, verses 3 through 14, is this phrase, in Him. We are chosen by God in Him. And I told you last week we we're not going to shy away from these as uh, some are wont to do, because there's so many things that we can't explain, so many things that we can't sort out, our minds just simply can't comprehend them. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. And so we will try to learn all that we can. But this tenet, this tenet of God's choosing His people will serve as the lens. It will be the filter through which we examine all of this text. The entire letter, but particularly here in chapter 1 in these first few verses. God's choosing or election is a controversial subject. And you know it is. You've probably heard some of those. You've probably been one of those people at some time or other where you've heard it mentioned and you just put your head down and kept moving because you didn't want to have that discussion or you didn't want to uh, stretch your mind in that way because... Ultimately, you walk away and you just have to accept some things for what they are, for what God has said, not that you can understand it. So why is choosing, God's choosing or election, such a controversial subject? I think there's several reasons. We can't exhaust that either. But people have misconceptions about the nature of God. They just don't understand who God is. We try to understand God or we define God according to what we know about ourselves or what we see in other human beings, rather than understanding that God is complete otherness. We are created in His image, but He is otherness, and we can't comprehend it. He's infinite. We're finite. He is vast and uncontainable. We're limited in this real narrow fashion. People also don't really understand biblical love. We hear a lot about that. People think that love is doing that which we want to have done for us. It's, it's complete compassion all the time. And yet God shows us the perfect tension between His justice, His holiness, and His love and His mercy and His grace. And then there's the one that I think is the most probably critical for people as they try to sort through this text, and that is what they believe about fairness. We hear it a lot in this day and age, right? These are my rights. In other words, this is what's fair. I expect to be treated fairly. I want fairness. We hear it all the time, right? But when it comes to fairness, God's standard of fairness, we don't really want fairness. We don't want fairness because in fairness, all of us have offended God's holiness. All of us have rebelled against Him. And the Scripture says that we are standing condemned before Him. And for God to save anyone, for God to choose anyone and rescue them from their sinfulness and their condemnation is what's not fair. So it's a matter of why did God choose anyone, let alone that He only chose certain ones. That's where we tend to swerve into this. Well, that's not fair that God would only choose some that He's going to save. No, what's not fair is that God chose anyone, any of us, because none of us deserve it. Election and predestination, which both are in this text, and some people go to church their whole lives and they will deny that these two words exist. 
They will deny that these two words are biblical, but if you do a careful study, you'll find that they're both there, they're in abundance, and if they're there, then it behooves us to understand them. What do they mean? What is God saying when these terms are used? So the question is not, does what uh, Scripture teach about them? It's, it's almost impossible for us to refrain uh, when it comes to these topics from arguing and debating. But I'm going to discourage that, arguing and debating. Discussing, yes. Arguing and debating. When you go to lunch today, don't sit on opposite sides of the table and go at one another. This is not a competition to win. When we get into that mode, then everybody loses. Our job, our goal is to understand as best we can what God is saying to us and how He works and we should want all, each other, to understand that. But understand that we may be at different places on our scale, on our chart of understanding. Some of you have been at this a long time. You've devoted a lot of time and energy to studying some of these deeper truths. And God has given you light, and you understand them. Others maybe are new in the faith, or maybe they just haven't spent a lot of time diving into these areas deeply and so they're not quite far along maybe they're at the foot of the mountain and you've made uh, a few feet in elevation on the mountain so take these things into consideration a calm discussion is good but a heated debate can be harmful as we're all seeking to grow so we should always approach God's word first and foremost on bended knee always I'm going to say this carefully I want you to listen carefully. Far too often when we come to God's Word, we come with our own presuppositions of what we think that it says or what it should say. And when we come with those kind of things in mind, we don't come with a mind that's ready for God to write His truth upon our minds. We come already with our formula worked out. We just need God to give us a check mark. You know, to approve it. And so that's what we end up doing when we get into these arguments. We're trying to find proof that what I believe is right. Instead of saying, I want to believe what is right. I want to believe what is right. I want to understand as best as God will let me, allow me, what He is saying. What His truth is. So we should desire to be taught by God. We should come prayerfully, desperate for God to give us clarity. We should not come merely seeking ammo for our next intense conversation on the subject. We should not merely seek proof for our presuppositions, nor uh, looking for a way to affirm that what we heard on our favorite podcast was actually true <laughs> or not true. Now, some of you, lighten up a little bit. This is a heavy, heavy enough topic. You can lighten up a little bit. We can have a little fun with it. It's okay. You don't go to hell for laughing. All right? You don't go, you, you're not. I don't find anything in Scripture about that. But we should be gracious to one another. We should be gracious to one another. Give grace, pray for one another. Let's be helpful toward one another. Trust God's Word. Trust God's Spirit to guide us as we navigate these pages together. And that includes the preacher. Listen, I don't know it all. I don't have it all mastered. The longer I'm at this... I've been preaching God's truth for so long, and yet every time I open it, I feel like I'm starting for the very first time. There's so much here to, to plumb the depths of. 
that um, it's always, it's always a daunting task. So we give each other grace. Election and predestination are often used as synonyms, and I don't think that's necessarily helpful. Think of predestination as applying to all that God foreordains. God foreordains everything. He's sovereign, right? He's in control of everything. Election pertains more to a narrow part of that foreordination, which is the people that God has chosen out to be His people. They are similar. They do overlap. But they're not exactly the same. Predestination is much broader than election. Election has been defined as the free and sovereign choice of God. It's made in eternity past to set His love upon a certain people. It's true God loves all people. But He loves the people that He has chosen to set His love upon, His grace upon, His mercy upon more. I can't explain it. I don't understand that. It's not sinful. It cannot be sinful because it's God doing it. His choice is made in eternity past. It's made on the basis of His good pleasure only. On His good pleasure only. Not based upon anything you or I would do. Romans 9 makes that very, very clear. Not made on the basis of the one who is chosen. He chooses to rescue some, and therefore He chooses not to rescue some. We can't understand it any better than that. Why? Well, we might try to unpack a little bit of why, but ultimately the reason why always is because God is doing that which glorifies Him. You and I can't understand that. We would think that it would be most glorifying to God if He, re he redeemed the whole race of humanity descended from Adam. But God has de decreed otherwise. And we have to trust that. We have to trust that He hasn't made a mistake, that He is perfectly just in doing so, and rest in that. So let's think a little bit about election here in these verses this morning, the first four verses of this text. First of all, I want you to know that election is God's privilege. Election is God's privilege. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, what? By the will of God. By the will of God. Now, we talked a little bit about Paul's testimony last week. If you have been following Paul around, maybe for the first half of his life, the last thing you would have expected was that he was going to be an apostle to Christianity, an apostle of Christ, a follower of Christ, a devoted, passionate, consumed passionate preacher of the gospel? I mean, you just knew Paul was going to be sitting as the chief priest there in Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin. But by the will of God, God interrupted his life when Paul, if left to his own devices, would have continued hunting and persecuting Christians just like he had been doing. It was God that changed the scenario in Paul's life. That's what he's saying here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, not by my own will, not by my own choosing. Will means pleasure or desire, by the desire of God. Chosen in Him. There's a significant place for our freedom and responsibility in our walk with God. 
in coming to God. But when speaking of election, Paul is very succinct and very, very simple. Verse 4, he says, he chose us. He chose us. Verse 5, he says, he predestined us. He predetermined us. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, God has chosen you for salvation. It's very simple. It's straightforward. Now, there are some important considerations for us around this doctrine that we need to point out. First of all, this is not a debate. He's not building a case to try to persuade you. He's making a declarative statement. It is a statement, not an argument. It's no debate. God declares it. Secondly, Scripture reprimands and reproves anyone who argues against it. I know, right? (laughs) I've had plenty of those discussions where people have argued with me about it. I said, look, your argument's not with me. You're arguing against God. Listen to what Romans says, Romans 9, 19 through 24. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, listen carefully, when you ask the why, what if God... What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. I don't know that we can make it sound any better than it does right there. So, Scripture says that we are reprimanded if we argue against God on this matter. We try to disprove His own truth. Thirdly, I want you to know that the Bible does not answer all our questions about this matter. The Bible does not answer all our questions about this matter. It does not offer a full philosophical explanation. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. You can't put boundaries upon it. Our minds are too small. They're too sinful to understand. And or God is protecting us and glorifying Himself. 2 Peter 1 Verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted us to know all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The Bible doesn't answer all our questions. I used to joke sometimes, and I think there's a measure of truth in it, but I don't want to treat it flippantly, but that God gives out information on a need-to-know basis. He has determined there are certain things that you and I don't need to know. If we need to know them, I'm sure He'll let us know, because that's who He is. He's a revealing God, but He doesn't reveal everything. 
The Bible also has other texts that speak to this doctrine. So it's not like this is a one-off. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 For we know, brothers, beloved by God, that He has chosen you. Titus 1.1 Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. 1 Peter 1.1 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 2 Peter 1.10 Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Matthew 24.31 And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect, His chosen, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, we could go through the Bible. It's filled with illustrations of this. God chose Abraham out of a pagan people. I mean, selected Abraham. Don't you know? Don't you know all those people in the land of Ur were upset because God didn't choose them? Why did they choose Abraham? I thought it wasn't based on anything that a person had, had did. What makes him special? It wasn't that there was anything special in Abraham. Abraham was special because God chose him. And no, no one in Ur was upset. Life went on for them just like it had. Left to their own devices, they're always rejecting God, not pursuing God. This is one of the big myths that we have among humankind. Left to our own devices, no one seeks after God. No one's seeking God. Adam and Eve, after walking with Him in fellowship, once they sinned, what did they do? They ran and hid from God. They didn't want an encounter with God. God has to change the wanter in a person's heart before they have a desire for fellowship with Him. So God chose Abram from among a pagan people. He chose Isaac rather than Ishmael. And I know you say, well, Ishmael wasn't the true son. He was, he was uh, Abraham's through a handmaiden. Well, God chose a Jacob and not Esau. And they were twins, and He chose them before they were born. He told their mother that the older will serve the younger. Jacob, I have loved Esau, not so much. God chose Israel and no other nation. And yet, no one argues against those choices that God made. It's only when we start talking about salvation, regeneration, that these arguments arise, isn't it? He chose Israel, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people than the Lord, that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. 
And the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, land, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Jesus chose the disciples. Out of several hundred that were following him, he chose and selected particular ones that would be his vessels for spreading the gospel after he ascended back into heaven. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So many people's problems with the doctrine of election begin with an infatuation to fairness. Well, that's just not fair. But if we want fairness, the Scripture says all have sinned against God, and the wages of sin is death, eternal, everlasting death. But God, in grace, chooses to rescue some. He said His mercy, His grace... His love on whom He wills. In the context of human depravity and bondage to sin, God's divine initiative to rescue some shines in great brilliance. Somehow, it manifests His glory in a way that redeeming every single person doesn't do. And only eternity will be able to tell us, if God wills, how that's true. Philippians 3, 4 through 6, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, said Paul. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. And God took that Jew of the Jews and turned him into an apostle for Christ. By His will. By His will. He chose the saints in Ephesus. A saint, as we said last week, is one who is regenerated by the saving power of God through the Holy Spirit. Because of what Christ did through His atoning work on the cross. It doesn't, it doesn't mean what some denominations have tried to make it mean. It's not set up with some kind of standard that people aspire to, but it is simply because of God's justification through Christ makes us all saints before Him. He chose these in Ephesus. And if you're here today and your faith and hope and trust is in Christ and Christ alone in what He has done for you by dying on the cross and shedding His blood as a payment for the sin that you have committed, that's been applied to your life, then you too are a saint. You're one of the chosen. You're one of the elect, called out from the world and apart from sin unto the Lord, justified, adopted into God's family. He chose us, predestined us. John 6, says, No one can come to the Father unless the one who sent me draws him. Well, what about free will? <laughs> we can really get into the weeds there, can't we? Yes, everyone has a free will, but you see, your free will has been, has been damaged and put into bondage through sin. 
It's like being incarcerated in the local jail. You may have freedoms there. You may have freedom to eat meals. You may have freedoms to move around. You may have freedoms to exercise. You may have freedoms to go outside into the courtyard. But you don't have freedoms just to get up and walk out, do you? And have the greatest freedom. Your freedom is limited by the confines of your surroundings. Because you've broken the law and you've been found guilty and you've been sentenced. And when Adam sinned, all of humanity sinned with it. We were all made to be in bondage. Yes, we still make choices, but those choices are within the boundaries that sin has now pressed in upon us. You can't just decide you're going to be justified and follow Christ. That's outside the boundaries of sin. Romans 9, 10 through 18, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall, then, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. How does God choose? He says he chooses in him, in Christ. Through Christ's atoning work, Paul combines election and the doctrine of union with Christ here. He chooses chooses us because of what Christ has done. This was, this was set up. This is what's most fascinating to me. That he says this was before the foundation of the world. Before there was ever a creation. God knew His own people by name. If you're here today and you're adopted into God's family. You're one of the elect. God knew you from eternity past. When they covenanted together... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, to to create and to redeem in this fashion, they had you in mind. Staggering, isn't it? There are some days I can't remember my own name. I went up to visit my mother this weekend, and Inevitably, when I'm in that area that I grew up in, I always see someone that knows me, but I no longer know. They've been out of sight and out of mind for so long, and my brain has gotten so tired and rigid, and they've gotten old too, that I no longer recognize them I don't know them anymore I I can't get my mind around this that God can reach back before there was ever any matter created any person created and he knew everything there was to know he knew how many hairs I would have and lose 
He knew every little problem that would beset this human body. He knew every thought I would have. Every one of those choices, decisions that I would make within the boundaries of my life. And not just about me, but everyone that ever lived. It's pretty staggering. In 2 Timothy 1, 8-11, Paul writes his final letter. And he writes to Timothy, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us, how? In Christ Jesus, before the ages began. Before Christ even died on the cross. which now has been manifested. Now it has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. How? He gave us, He elects us in Christ. He elects us eternally. From before the foundation of the world, before the ages began, God chooses us before we exist, and He does this in love. The end of verse 4, He says, In love He predestined us to adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Similar to Deuteronomy 7 that I read just earlier, except that He chose Israel due to His love, Here He's chosen His elect, which has flowed out of His choice of Israel. He chose Israel to bring Christ into the world. He said to Abram, I'm going to bless the world through you, through your descendants. I'm going to bring the promised seed through you. What is the purpose for election? Well, He tells us here, it's for holiness, our sanctification. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. You had no hope, no means, no way you're ever going to be holy or righteous, accepted by God, in and of yourselves. We are unholy. We are sinners. We are born corrupt. We're rebels at heart. We are bent in the wrong direction. Just watch any child... And you'll understand the depth of this corruption. You don't have to teach them to misbehave. You don't have to teach them to be rebellious. That it rises up within them because it's already there. They are creatures of rebellion because of Adam's sin. But God, through Christ, has reached down to redeem us to rescue us, to change us, that we might be like Christ. Romans 8, 29-30, for those whom He foreknew. Now, I know some people advocate that this means God looked down through the ages and He knew all those who would believe upon Him, and that's not what it means. It means He knew you before. He knew you before, not what decision you would make. You see, if it's about what decision you would make, you've suddenly assumed the role of God. 
You've become the one that's sovereign. For those whom He foreknew, He knew beforehand. He also predestined them to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. The firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. He does it all. He saw it before it was ever even possible before there was any creation he saw the whole process and he's worked to fulfill that entire saving work adam failed to steward god's creation for his glory but christ has succeeded and offered substitutionary atonement he paid the debt of sin he has acquired resurrection over uh, or new life through his resurrection Whom God chooses, He determines, will be holy and blameless like Christ. And Christ's work guarantees our holiness and blamelessness. And He does it for God's glory. As you come to Him, a living stone, 1 Peter tells us, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but... So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, talking to the elect, but you are a chosen race, a holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul puts an exclamation point on it in this first chapter of Ephesians, and he says, for the praise of God's glory, to the praise of God's glory, to the praise of God's glory. That's as far as we can take it. Why did he do this? Why did he work it this way? Well, it would have made much more sense had he just created us perfect and forced us to be perfect to start with. Well, from a limited human perspective, you know, we've got what? Two dimensions? God has infinite dimensions. And he says that all this is to the praise of his glory. I remember sitting in, in a conversation with a professor at a seminary, and we were talking about some of the things that God does and God doesn't do, and I made a statement. It wasn't my statement, but I borrowed it from someone, that we know that God allowed sin into this world. He, he ordained that sin would come in because this would ultimately produce a greater glory for God, renewing, saving as opposed to keeping it all righteous to start with. And he pushed back on that. He said, how can you say that? How can you know that? And I said, because that's what's happened. And if you believe that God is sovereign, 
If you believe God is sovereign, that He has total and absolute control, then we have to reach that conclusion, do we not? That what has happened has been what God has deemed needed to happen. And it's all for His glory. Paul gets it. He keeps going back and singing this chorus over and over and over to the praise of God's glory, for the praise of God's glory, for the praise of God's glory. Verses 9 and 10 give us the theme for the whole letter. Making known to us the mystery of His will, His purposes. Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. He set this forward. It's mysterious. You and I don't know everything there is to know. We can't know every detail. But what Paul says is that it is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. That is, for the fullness and the completion of everything God is doing, that He might unite all things, that He might bring about reconciliation, cosmic reconciliation of all creation that's now been tainted by sin, that He might bring about that reconciliation and unite all these things in this new creation in Him, in Christ. Things above in heaven, things on earth. All of it. You can be sure of that. You can rejoice in that. And that's what Paul was doing. It's as if he started writing this letter. And he starts talking about, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he just goes off. God gets a hold of him and he just goes off thinking about all that God has done and is doing. And he's just bubbling over with praise and worship for God. This is what God is after, says Paul. This is what God wants. He wants us to worship him, to worship him in spirit and in truth, in Grand design, the best that we can offer, with joy, with thanksgiving, with trust and expectation. So, what do we do with this? Well, I'm going to give you three or four things right here just to think of in way of application. First of all, we can be assured, we can be secure in Christ. He chooses. He chooses. He reached down and got you if you're in Christ today. Now, I know we spent a lot of time worried about who He didn't get. Well, you don't know who He hasn't gotten. So there's no point in wasting your time or your energy trying to sort all that out. Quit worrying about that. Start worrying about His elect. And when you go forth to communicate the gospel, go forth with great assurance and trust that God is going to get His elect. Pray for God to send you His elect. Show you His elect. 
Well, Luke's former pastor said he wished that God had decided to put an E tattooed on everybody's forehead. But it's not that simple. We don't know. But God knows who they are. We don't. So we go forth sharing the seeds of the gospel in trust, knowing that God's going to take that seed, carry it, because He has ordained the method of evangelism as well as the end of evangelism. His election guarantees this. So we go forth with great encouragement and, show, and share the gospel, knowing that God's going to bring fruit. We just don't know who it will be. We go forth with humility. This doctrine sticks a pen in the balloon of human pride. Because that's about how fragile human pride is. So one of the reasons human beings push back so fiercely against this doctrine is because it wounds our pride. It takes the controls out of our hands and puts them solely in God's. This should fill us with awe and gratitude for God. Awe and gratitude for God. I didn't just wake up one day and decide to get my act together and call God up and say, hey, how about me and you working on a contract? Because I'd really like to spend eternity in heaven. I've been looking this thing over, and I think it's a great place, and I, I'd like to get my lot squared away. Can we take care of that today? It didn't happen. You know what happened? God sent forth the hounds of heaven chasing me because in my sinful, corrupt heart, I was fleeing Him with every fiber in my body. Every choice I made was always for Jerry, for self, and against God. But God sent those hounds of heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit, and He brought me to Himself. Oh, that changes the way I approach God in worship. I don't come swaggering in and say, well, I'm here. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad to see me today, God? You're I'm your favorite, right? No, I come in humble. So grateful that God came looking for me when I deserved His judgment. This should fuel our worship, should it not? should fuel our worship. I think this goes at the heart of worship in spirit and truth. We need to lean into these healthy truths and pathways. We can't exhaust it all, but I give those to you just as morsels to say, here, begin here. Begin here. And see where the Lord takes you. See where He takes you. I wish, I wish that I had some kind of tome, some kind of, uh, I don't know, page written out that perfectly explained God's election and His purposes and plans. And I could just distribute those today and you could go out with all your questions answered. <laughs> but I don't have it. And God doesn't, no one's got it. This is what we have. And He's left some things Hidden in mystery. He, give, he turns up enough of a corner to give us enough light to sustain us, to do what we need in this world. And he says, now trust me in the rest. Trust me in the mystery. Trust me. I got it handled. 
Parents, you do that with your children. You say, look, I'm going to explain this to you. This is why I don't want you doing this. This is how we're going to do it and why we're going to do it. But you're not going to understand it all, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to belabor anything with that. I'm not going to slow you down with that. Just trust me for the rest, okay? And God has asked us to trust Him for the rest. For the rest. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful, grateful for your wisdom and your mercy and your grace. I can't even get my mind around it. I'm so thankful. Lord, there's enough there to convince me, to convict me that you have my absolute best interest at heart, that you are doing that which glorifies and honors you, and that if we love you, as we love you because you first loved us, as we love you, then we should be okay with whatever glorifies and honors you. That should be first and foremost in our hearts and minds. Help us, help us to release the things that get in the way. Help us to release those things that become stumbling blocks. Help us release those things that we feel like we just have to know in order that we can rest in you and all the things that you have given us, that we can focus on them and follow you with joy, Lord, with conviction. I pray indeed that you might take these truths and that you might penetrate our hearts in ways that we maybe have difficulty even discussing together, but that you will settle them in our hearts, Lord, and, and fuel our worship for you and fuel, Lord, our evangelism, trusting you to do what only you can do and for us to do what you've asked and called us to do. Do it so, Lord. Use this church. Use this church, Lord, to scatter the seeds of the gospel that you might call forth your people, that you might redeem them for yourself, those that you have seen since before the foundation of creation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.